You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Karstblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity about systematic trend following as an investment strategy, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with uh, Richard where we discussed all things backtesting and forward testing and everything in between. I really think it was something that a lot of listeners think is important. So if you missed it, I invite you to go back and check it out. Let me also give a quick shout out to uh, those of you who spent a few minutes this week leaving a rating and review. I noticed some great ones from Joey Yaz, Hypnosis 8 and Ernst Mango or Mago, just to name a few. You should know that I do read all of them and I post many of them on the website and we're very grateful for the help that you give us in order to grow the podcast. Moritz, you're back from holiday. How are you? Yeah, back from Italy since, I don't know, 12, 18 hours or something like that. So got back last night. Just been great to be out of the country. We've had a uh, a very wet and cold summer here in Bavaria. not sure if that's also true for for Zouk, where you live, Niels, but um, it's been relatively cold here, so it's been good to get get away and uh, enjoy some sunshine and warm weather in Italy. We were in Rome. It was 38 degrees centigrade there, so that's actually too much. But, you know, around Tuscany, Florence, it's just beautiful area, good food, nice people, good beaches. Kids loved it, so all good. All good. Yeah, I, I went away for the summer, which I normally do. I won't, I go back north to uh, to Denmark, my my birth country, and we had actually a pretty good summer. But I will say that lots of our Swiss friends, when I came back, have told me that it's probably been the worst summer they can imagine. And actually, just like in Germany, ho- you know, luckily not as bad as as in the eastern part of Germany, but or western part of Germany, sorry. But there were certainly some issues with flooding and all mm-hmm. of that as well. So uh, yes, certainly an, an extreme weather-wise summer. But I hope you managed to uh, recharge your batteries, Moritz, because we've got lots of great things to uh, talk about today. If I was going to do a quick market summary, I don't know how much you actually have followed the markets at all. Have you been sort of completely yeah, I, away from it? Not completely, but I make a habit of uh, of really you know, trying to wind down a bit and uh, read some books that have nothing to do with the markets don't log on to Twitter all the time and not follow every move in the market. So I, I'm a little bit in, uh, a little bit off. <laughs> sure, sure. But well, I'm catching up on things. You're catching up on things. That's great. And uh, I'm sure the market wrap that I'm going to focus on this week will come as no surprise to you because, of course, the week finished with the quote-unquote all important, at least to the Fed, unemployment numbers, which came in, let's call it, a lot weaker than expected. And I love the way that one financial blogger put it. He wrote, is this bad news so bad that it's actually bad? And then the blogger went on to write, now before the release, everyone thought bad news would be good news because it would mean less tapering. But this news is so bad, it may actually be taken as bad news. So kind of a 
a little bit of of uh, mental gymnastics there, and of course we're going to have to see what the Fed will uh, say next. Of course, they may just come back and say, well, now we need more data because the data is not as clear as we thought. At least as rules-based investors, we don't really have to worry about how we should interpret these numbers. Of course, since we are in the minority, the immediate question for most investors, is the number weak enough to convince the FOMC to postpone the tapering of the open market purchases? And given all the commentary of the various Fed presidents and gov- uh, governors in the last few weeks, you may conclude that the answer is a solid maybe. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that the 120 billion monthly purchases is distorting interest rates, with rates across the yield curve very near at zero. The Fed can declare mission accomplished, but part of the accomplishment is an arguably wildly overvalued and overconfident stock market. The question the Fed members may be asking themselves is, will tapering undermine record high stock indices? It might, but it's not part of the Fed's dual mandate to keep unemployment low and inflation stable. The unemployment rate, by the way, has fallen to 5.2% from 14.8% in April 2020, while the annual CPI is at 5.4%, well above the Fed's 2% target. I'm sure the official response will be that we need more data to decide, but of course, we'll have to wait until we hear from them. Now, Moritz, interesting to hear your kind of uh, view on uh, what's going on in your portfolio, the markets, given the fact that you haven't paid as close attention as you would normally do. I guess that's the advantage of being rules-based. You don't have to spend too much time on it when you're on holiday. So uh, what does it look like now that you're back? Looks pretty good. I mean, you know, I run my system every day, even though I'm on, on holiday, but I'm sure. not spending hours on it. I'm up 26% year to date. Uh, August was up 1.10%. July was up 60 basis points and slightly down in September, but that's only kind of like one day, I guess, only Friday. Now, what has happened? I think it's been a relatively quiet August for me. I took some notes here uh, to prepare for our conversation. My portfolio is mainly long. I only have a really just a handful of short short positions on. And in August, what I did exit is I exited a long position in Cosby on the 19th of August. That's a trade that I had on since December of last year. I think I made a percent or so on that trade. Um, the market had moved kind of sideways since April this year, had to drop in August. That scared everybody and that kicked me out. I also exited the long euro currency position I exited the long silver position on 9th August. I think I'm not the only one there catching up with you guys. That was the day when gold and silver had this massive overnight sell-off. And of course, that kicked me out. Um, It is what it is. I would have left it to be different uh, because gold and silver are rising again. But uh, right now, I don't have a long position. And I also exited long platinum. And that was it. The short positions that I have on is, I, I think, yen and lumber. Lumber is a great short, by the way. I'm short LIBOR uh, in the September 2024 contract. That's about it, maybe five or six shorts. And the meaningful long positions, European wheat, milling wheat, uh, it's kind of nice. Eurostock's dividends, very nice. The S&P just uh, looks very strong to the upside. Um, Long coffee, long palm oil, long natural gas. Natural gas is actually one of these things that I can... Yeah, I can feel a little bit in my portfolio in, in 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 nice ways and interesting ways as well. I mean, there's Henry Hub, so U.S. natural gas, which is 
which is moving higher, and I have a long position. I also have a long position in Dutch gas, which is TTF. And that contract is really going, you know, through the roof right now because we have a gas shortage here in Europe. And that contract, the market traded at around 15.15 in March, April of this year, and it's now north of 50. The market is really scared that Europe isn't going to be having enough gas. Uh, you know, the storage isn't filled up enough for the coming winter season. So this this market is moving higher. And what's interesting about this is that it's becoming substantially and increasingly correlated to emissions, which I'm also long. And that's there's also a nice market to be long off. But what's happening here, and that's interesting, is that because gas is getting so much more expensive, it's actually lucrative for the power plants to fuel switch from gas to coal. And coal is the dirty fuel that they shouldn't be burning anymore because of carbon dioxide emissions. And when they do that, when they burn coal to generate power, they need to buy more emission certificates, more emission allowances. And this is what's driving the emissions higher, right? So you have a very strongly positively correlated market right now, which which, you know, didn't used to be the case. And that's what I'm saying. Like I can, I can kind of like feel the gas positions in my portfolio, Henry Hub, TTF, and also the correlation with emissions. It's all very nice volatility because it's all to the upside and all very profitable right now. But of course, it does have a risk when that thing turns around. And one of the things that I like about some of the spread uh, systems that I have on is that it tends to get me onto different parts of the curve. So for instance, in TTF, where uh, I'm long the front contract, my spread system also signaled me to have some short spreads on in, in, in deck gen and, and also in, uh, in April, May. And that reduces my outright exposure to TTF at the short end quite a bit and makes the thing a bit more stable. So gas is interesting. Let's see what happens there. It's exciting. And other than that, easy as it goes. Yeah, a couple of questions. Oh, well, first a comment. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's an interesting thing, this thing about Europe um, scratching their heads to find more gas. And mm -hmm. of course, what better way to, uh, than to buy it from a reliable source like Vladimir Putin, who's mm -hmm. obviously <laughs> always going to provide all the gas we need when, when it fits into his uh, schedule. So, uh, but that's just, you know, my take on, on this, because of course there's this new, uh, pipeline being put in place uh, into Europe from uh, from Russia. Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2. But let me ask you a question, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm just curious. Obviously, you're having a great year so far. How much of that, would you say, comes from classical your classical trend portfolio, and how much is some of the new stuff that you've talked about that seems to be working really well, like some of the spreads yeah. and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, I'd say 75 to 80% is classic trend following. Okay. I may actually, you know, look at becoming a little bit larger with these spreads. Yeah. But I've only added them about a year or so ago. So me being a scaredy cat, I don't want to, you know, just uh, switch that system on and, and you know, go all in on that stuff. Try it out a little bit, kick the tires, see how it works in real time and in real life. And um, it's, I'm, I'm really happy about, you know, having put in all the work. I mean, it's took me quite some some time, years actually, to do that uh, and, and come up with that system. But I like what I see and the way it trades and the way it behaves. So um, maybe by the end of the year or something like that, I become a little bit larger. 
with these spreads. I mean, mind you, they're a little bit more expensive to trade, of course, because I'm trading on both sides of the markets, right? So it's twice the commissions. But system diversification is is absolutely fantastic. We've we've talked a lot about market diversification on that podcast and you know, diversification across different timeframes and and all of that is is super. But if you can get system diversification on top of that, that's great. Uh, with systems that are still trend-following type of systems, even though it's a spread system. Uh, systems that have trend-following properties, positive skew, these type of things, you know, no large downside tails to the left side. And um, that's stuff that I don't like. And my spread system just correlates with close to nothing to my outright trend-following positions. And um, therefore, it's very valuable to me. So yeah, and <laughs> the, the gas stuff, I mean... Look, it's 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 politics. I think to a large extent, uh, we hear news that Russia themselves don't have enough gas this year. I find that a little bit hard to believe, but there there was a story that it would take them from now another two months to fill up their gas storage. I'm not sure if that's true, but maybe they use that to say, look, we can't deliver more gas to Europe because we're short ourselves. I think there. I mean, this is my my opinion personal opinion that might be absolutely wrong is um, they're just using leverage to get Nord Stream 2 going. That's what they want. And and then the gas starts flowing again. Well, interesting point that you mentioned about system diversification. That is another topic um, that we've uh, discussed, of course, and I can almost uh, sense Jerry making notes as he's listening to you and I because he's on next week and, of course, he's going to try and, I'm sure convince us that, uh, no, no, we should just do what we normally do. So I think this is where Rich uh, and and you and I, maybe even Rob, are more sort of open to this thing about there might be other ways of doing trend following. Not saying that Jerry isn't, but in terms of actually implementing different types of trend following systems rather than just uh, having multiple timeframes. So interesting point. On my side, in terms of uh, our uh, trend following strategies, at done, I mean, you know, whether the unemployment news is bad, not so bad, or even good. Our trend following strategies had a positive week where some of the long-standing trends, in particular in equities and energies, continued to march higher. Currencies also had a positive contribution this week, but elsewhere in the portfolio, we did see some smaller corrections, in particular in the grains and the softs. It is interesting, though, to me, and of course, uh, my trend barometer is completely unrelated to what we do uh, at Dunn and and what my trend-following model is doing, but it is interesting to me that it's currently actually still showing pretty weak readings. And of course, the summer hasn't been super great for for trend-following returns, so we'll see what happens next. On the volatility side, it was a very quiet week in U.S. equity and volatility markets, despite you could say the rather surprising economic data that uh, we talked about Friday in particular was as close to a non-trading day as one can imagine with the S&P 500 moving by less, I think, than 0.05%. While this is still, you know, it still led to a weekly gain for the S&P and the VIX remained more or less unchanged, finishing around 16 and a quarter which was down ever so slightly since uh, the last week. The VIX is approaching post-COVID lows again, a level it has bounced off a couple of times during this year already. 
and the positive change in fixed income strike volatility, which almost offset the increase in the S&P, is therefore not entirely surprising. Downside protection remains heavily sought after, and therefore it is quite expensive. But despite all of that, the S&P realized volatility is at 3.9% for the last five days and 7.5% for the last two weeks, so incredibly low. Uh, All in all, our volatility strategy had a positive week as well and uh, a positive start to uh, September. For my trend-following portfolio, uh, where as usual I can be a little bit more specific, it was a down week. It was a down week for the week, but the month of September, which we've started, it's up 30 basis points. It's up 9.57% year-to-date. Performance breaks down group one so far this month in September, so it's only a few trading days, of course. It's uh, pretty much flat down four basis points. Group two, up 28 basis points, and group three, almost flat as well at six basis points. Best sectors so far, energies, base metals, and softs. The worst sectors are currencies and bonds. And if we drill down to uh, single markets, as you rightly pointed out, um, Moritz, NatGas is doing best. NASDAQ, an Australian spy, uh, makes up the last two top three markets so far. At the bottom this month, I have SMI and the euro and the DAX not doing so well. And in terms of trading this week, uh, the week started off with the model buying some copper. It closed and took a loss uh, on a short position. And then also it bought some coffee and some uh, RBOP. And then on Tuesday, it was all about my fast-reacting models because uh, they had gone short the DAX not long ago, but then it just managed to get stopped out of those shorts and reversed to a long position as the DAX tried to make a new all-time high. It failed at the attempt, so we'll still have to see how these uh, these long position pans out, but that's partly why... uh, it suffered some losses in in August. It was due to these um, shorter day or short term uh, models for sure. What else did it do? It closed out a long coffee trade, and it closed a short euro position. And lastly, on Friday, it went out of a long cattle live cattle position. In terms of the risk to uh, stop level, if everything gets stopped out on Monday, it would lose around ten point one six percent, which is down from twelve and a half percent the week before. All right, so before we jump into the questions, and we've got quite a few of them, which is great. Uh, Joe, Derek, James, Sebastian, and Mikkel send in some questions. But I wanted to ask you just to go back a week on the topic that Rich and I discuss, namely backtesting. And I'm just curious, uh, Moritz, maybe you could just share a few of your thoughts in terms of how you uh, your framework is for, uh, for doing a backtest, uh, what you look for. Maybe are there certain things you feel is really important to uh, to ensure so that you um, don't read the wrong things into uh, to the backtest results, so to speak? Hmm. The backtesting question. Um, well, what do I look for? It, it starts with the data, right? So make sure you have good, clean data. You can get data. You can use the daily bars. You can use weekly bars. Some people use monthly bars even. I like daily bars. My system would work as well on weekly bars, by the way. I've tested that, and um, that is a good sign. So what I look for is a large sample size of trades. Without... Do you have a, can I start to interrupt you here, yep. Moritz? That was one thing that came up in the discussion as well. Is there such, such a thing as a minimum number of trades that you need to have before you feel, yeah, that's it? Because we, we've used this sample size 
you we've talked we talk about it almost every single episode but yeah. i don't know if people really know what do we mean by that does that mean a thousand trades does that mean ten thousand trades do you have any uh, view on yeah this? it's it's difficult to get to ten thousand trades unless you do um you know you have a very short term system or sure. you use a lot of data going back uh, decades and decades but um in in like our trend following world if you have a few thousand trades historically that's kind of like what it is but think about it that way, right? If if you had a trade, a sample size of um, of fifty, I mean, what does that really mean statistically? You can roll the dice fifty times. It doesn't mean that it's, or you can flip a coin fifty times. If you do it fifty times, it doesn't mean that it's twenty five times head and twenty five times tails. There's going to be noise in that distribution. And so what it is that we'd like to do is we want to remove that noise as much as we can. And the larger our sample size, the more we'll reduce it. And the more we'll kind of like crystallize our edge in that sample. So a few thousand trades. And then be mindful that if what you see is not what you like because the PL is too rough and too volatile and the drawdowns are too large, I mean, that is likely an outcome of your backtest then you, you'll probably feel that urge to um, to do something that's better because you think that you can do better. You can sit in front of the computer and you can find rules that make that P&L curve even smoother or much smoother so that you'll have a better time with it. And that's that's exactly the point when you start entering the optimization environment. And you have to be very, very careful there, I think, because... It is so easy to find filters and additional parameters and all sorts of things, additional entry rules, additional exit rules, scaling in, scaling out, volatility control, yada, yada. We've spoken about that many times. All of those will probably have the effect of making your historical experience a better one because uh, you'll have less drawdown, even higher returns, more winning trades, all of these type of things. But you're essentially curve-fitting something to the to the past that is unlikely to occur again in the future. And therefore, that's the wrong thing to do. And it also reduces your sample size because every additional condition that you put on top of your system is kind of like more specific to something, to a specific event, to a specific you know, price action that has occurred in the past. And the more specific you make that, the less the likelihood that that exact same pattern is going to occur again going forward. So Except the fact that a trend following, a classic caveman trend following PL return stream is rough. Lose fans fit all people, right? Um, and, and, and rough is good. Find other ways to reduce that roughness if you must. I mean, I've kind of like, I've mentioned that before. I, I stripped a lot of things off of my trend following system over time, you know, becoming simpler again. And, and, and less complex in, in the way that I trade, actually embrace that volatility, waiting for that outlier and then have these you know massive moves. I guess in, in prior years, I wasn't really primed or ready yet to, um, to trade in that way. Um, it, it caused too much pain, made me nervous, whatever it was. I, I'm, I'm kind of like now more steadfast in that, that I can just accept it and take it on the chin and I know that what I'm doing is the right thing to do. Still, that doesn't mean that I'm that I'm not looking to trade better. I always want to trade better. And why not? You can add markets to your system. 
that helps. Jerry has added the single stocks. I'm sure that helps. I've added spreads. That helps me. That's a form of system diversification. The larger the account size, the more you can diversify across timeframes. The more you can trade markets that have a relatively large notional contract size, Bitcoin, for instance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so this this is what I would focus on is is not to um, not to become too specific in your rules, but rather broaden your market set, broaden your timeframes, and broaden your system diversification. But stay true to trend following principles. You know, don't put system on top of system and you have like one trend following system and you combine that with a quote unquote crappy mean reversion system that would really kill your trend following experience. Um, I, I don't like these type of things. So it needs to be in a trend following framework, trend following mindset. And then I I like I like the way Jerry has um, said it many times on this podcast is don't fall in love with these uh, historical curves. I mean, that is... That is just a chart. It's like a picture. Look at some of the key statistics. Uh, what's the average win? What's the average loss? Win-loss ratios, these type of things. I, I look at the maximum drawdown, of course. But you don't really need a ton more than that. At least I believe that. I'm not really interested in a historical value at risk figure for my system. Like what would the VAR have been in, you know, I don't know, 2011 during the uh, during the euro euro crisis i i don't know that 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 doesn't add anything to my uh to my thinking so i look at the historical volatility i, I find that interesting like what has it realized i look at some monthly returns one thing i do look at is uh margin utilization mm -hmm. and i want to be conservative with these things i don't want to run a system where i'm getting kicked out of positions because i'm i'm just trading i'm trading to you know, too large a size. I have too much risk on in terms of margin. And uh, you need to be cognizant of the fact that margins can increase and do increase every time volatility in the market is, is rising. So that's one of the things I look at so that I can make sure that I can stay with my positions. Other than that, not much more. Sure. I used to look at probably a million things. That's why I said, like, you know, when I left peak, peak complexity type of but all of these statistics, I mean, you can come up with Mar, you, this, that, Sortino, Sharp, blah, blah. Yeah, fine. But why? I mean, what? it wouldn't have had a, an, an impact. It wouldn't have changed my decision-making process with that trend-following system. So I don't really need that anymore. So, so let me, this is actually, I'm going to jump straight into one of the questions we got from Derek because he, he's asking what are the most important risk metrics you monitor. And then he goes on to say that from what I'm saying, you know, every every week, it's it's the risk to stop. So I'm going to comment on that in a second. Jerry weighed into this on Twitter saying, you know, he looks at average trade, average win, average loss, percentage win, risk of ruin. And, 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 and as you've said, you know, some of these are the same, of course. And what you've said also is that you really try to cut down on the number of, of things you look at. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's something that comes with probably just experience. I mean, in the beginning, we... We're tempted to look at so many things that we think would be interesting and meaningful, but in reality, it comes down to very few things. So let me ask you a slightly different question, and that is, what metrics would you look at to get a clue where you say, no, this system I wouldn't trade? I mean, where it's, uh, where, you know, what, what are you looking for to make the judgment saying, yeah, this is fine, or no, this is not fine? Is there anything you found 
that kind of triggers you to make a decision one way or the other? Yeah. I mean, of course, I mean, imagine imagine you run that back test on a system and it has a few thousand trades, um, that's your sample size, and it comes up with an average trade that's negative. Well, I'm not really interested in trading that system, I guess, right? Because what it statistically means is that if I, if I put that trade on, then on average, I'm going to lose money. So no, that's not for me. I also want to stay away from systems where my average loss is greater than my average gain. You know, that speaks to the skew of the distribution. With our trend-following systems, we keep our losses very small. We keep them, you know, to a certain number of ATRs, and in my case, hopefully, in the absence of the market gapping, but we keep the upside open. And so that means that we have that asymmetric distribution of gains versus losses. It's something that I'd like to see. Uh, the consequence of that is drawdowns and volatility and roughness of P&L, but the positive aspect is robustness of the system and having a great time and a reliable system, having a great time that, you know, sometimes when that thing works, it really shoots for the stars. So I like that. That's about it, I'd say. I mean, I don't want a system where the historical drawdown, I mean, probably there is a limit where I say, like, if, if, if the historical drawdown is, say, 70% or so, then, yeah, I hmm, probably wouldn't trade that system. But even there, you could say, well, reduce the size, reduce your risk, right? If you only traded half the risk, then that 70% drawdown becomes a 35% drawdown, all else being equal. Um, so you can adjust things. But the drawdown in and by itself is probably not the single metric upon which I throw a system uh, out or switch one on or off. Okay, no, that that's cool. So I would say, Derek, it's true that I talk about every week about the risk to stop. It's not really a... Uh, it's I wouldn't say it's the, the, the main risk metric. For me, I think it's a really useful statistics for a number of reasons. It obviously tells me a little bit about the riskiness in the portfolio. But I think more importantly, it tells me or it helps me monitor if something is out of whack. So, for example, if you, and I certainly don't say that, that this has happened, but if you were to have an error in your code and you suddenly ended up with a massive position, then that would show up because you, your, your risk to stop would blow out and so that's a that's a good way for you to quickly see that something might be wrong. So I think for me it's just kind of a monitoring tool that that I uh, uh, that I use. And of course we ca we can do this because we have or, or, or everyone can use this as long as you use kind of hard stop loss exits uh, on all of your positions. When looking at a back test, I agree with you, Moritz. I agree with Jerry. I think it, it is about keeping things relatively simple. And of course, these, you know, having more average win compared to your average loss, all of that makes complete sense. I think, though, what I found is that one of the things that I believe will potentially break your confidence in your system, it's how deep and how long your drawdown is. So for me, drawdowns are actually quite important. And I think there are different ways you can look at drawdowns. There, uh, obviously, you could just look at the max drawdown. You could look at that. You could look at the length of your drawdowns and, and so on and so forth. And I think one of the kind of other metrics is that uh, people also look at, so this is not unique, 
is uh, this uh, ulcer index, which measures and identifies the average drawdown that you can expect uh, that you should be able to stomach if you trade a particular strategy. I think that's important. I think Sharp and Sotino, I don't really pay much attention, if any, to those things. I think actually Sharp could be classified as a risky statistics to look at, not a risk statistic. So, So things like that. I think for me, it's and I also think that one thing that I, I want to do some more work on and, and have already started doing this with Rich and will come out uh, with something in, in the fall, and that's more in, in this sort of path-dependent way of looking at drawdowns because you can have very different real-time experiences depending on how, how that path is once you get to a drawdown. So those are the things, but I do think that we all agree that things have to be generally pretty simple in order to be robust. And of course, you I'm sure we all have some kind of rule of thumb in terms of what we expect the drawdowns would be based on our volatility and things like that. And and those things are worth keeping an eye on and see if the backtest uh, makes sense in that respect. But I want to stay with Derek because Derek's sending another question um, and I can't wait to hear your answer on this, uh, Moritz. So he's sending another question and that is... If you had to start the business again from scratch, what would you do differently or keep the same? How would you try to be unique, if at all? Hmm. So I don't, I don't run a, well, I, I, I do run a business, but it's a business within the Munich Group. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's definitely a different setup than, say, Dunn sure. or Chesapeake, right? But you've also been involved in starting a business, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Exactly. so you know exactly what it, what it takes. I mean, I can... From what what I can say, and uh, to 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 let you guys in on that, I mean, it's it, it has to do a lot with uh, with people and trust. So when when I started Quantum together with a bunch of friends, you know, this is now almost ten years ago. Of course, I was ten years younger. Uh, I think I was uh, to a certain extent naive and blue eyed, and in the way that I thought about the future success of that firm. I was doing that together with a friend from Winton. He came from Winton Capital, brand name CTA. Um, we got some really senior guys on board, great names. Uh, Perry Kaufman on there. It's like, you know, it, it, it felt like if if this doesn't work, then nothing in the world can work. This just needs to work and people will throw their their money at us. And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth, right? It was very difficult to get seed money we eventually did get seed money. You know, it's it's now a, a profitable firm. The firm is still around, but it's been difficult, nevertheless, because the way you yeah, have been the majority owner of that firm, the way we've built that up is we've kind of like put in all the everything had to be super. Everything was expensive. There was an expensive office. You know, super expensive IT infrastructure, market data people on the payroll, um, regulatory costs, but no revenue, right? And I thought, well, you know, it, it can't take long and then we'll make a ton of money, performance fees, management fees, uh, the AUM will be in the hundreds of millions and none of that happened. So you have that business risk where it becomes really difficult to, you know, go through that phase because you have to cut down expenses. Nobody's feeling good about that. Nobody's really earning money. And then, I mean, in our case, it's it's all about the people then. If you have between five and 10 people and not everybody can work through these periods in the same way as everybody else can. There are some people that just cannot live in that with that uncertainty and 
And, you know, for understandable reasons, I mean, if you don't make an income, it's it's very difficult with family and all these type of things, right? And then you also, in our case, we had people of different, um, in, in different age groups. I was uh, certainly the youngest at the pack there. I had a very long-term view of uh, building that business, kind of like, okay, keep the risk down, you know, build that up. And then here we go for the next 30, 40 years. Of course, if you have, uh, a, a, you know, partners who are 20, say 15 to close to 20 years older than you are, they have a different perspective on what they want to do with that business. You know, for them, it's not a 40 year journey. It's more like, you know, that thing needs to make money within the next 10 to 15 years, because then I, you know, I'd like to retire and that impacts risk-taking. So what, what I want to say is I, I don't think I'd make anything too different in terms of um, trading style, trend following, all of this. I, I kind of like I had already figured out back then, probably do it less complex the way that I do it now. But really, if you want to start a business, be so careful about costs, keep them down, 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 down. Uh, make sure that you get some track record under your belt, some friends and family money in there. Don't hire too many people off the bat. Don't be naive. Don't think that you'll be the one that can make it. Um, it's very difficult. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it has become a lot more difficult, actually, since uh, you started your last firm. And, and and I've certainly also been involved in a few startups in my career. So so I, I want to start from the reverse, actually, because Derek ends the question by saying, how would you try to be unique, if at all? And that kind of reminds me of this quote, that in order to stand out, we need to know what we stand for. And I think, you know, having a really, really clear definition of what it is you want to do um, with your with with your new firm, I think is incredibly important. I I will have I will have to say that I think the barriers to entry in our industry has gone up significantly. Not and it's not even just about the AUM you start with. There's so many other things that you now have to, so to speak, tick in order to attract uh, investors, not least uh, a certain length of actual track record. Uh, you know, everyone can show up with a simulation, but it really means nothing. So in terms of actual track record, so all of those things you uh, you need to, uh, you know, you, as, as you rightly said, more it's, it's a really long-term view you have to take. So the way I think about it today is there are a couple of things you could do. If you have a... Um, some sort of a track record that people can check and see and you might have some some good experience already in the industry and you want to kind of branch out. One way you could do it is, of course, you could try to find a strategic partner to be part of. Uh, you know, I, I guess uh, also in, in, in my youth, I thought it was better to be, you know, a big slice of a, of, 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 of a firm rather than being a smaller slice of an even bigger firm. So, if you can find a strategic partner, even if you have to give up some of the uh, equity or profits, whatever it might be, I think that's a good idea. But I will also say that I think it's very hard to find today. I think there's less people than 10, 20 years ago who are actually willing to do these seeding or, or early acceleration deals. And the conditions you get offered nowadays are really not that great. So you have to be careful, but you could be lucky and find someone who who wants to support you. So that's one thing. The other thing 
you could do is just to try and and say, well, why do I what what do I really want to achieve with my trading? You know, wh- why do I want to manage a lot of other people's money? And I think you have to be clear on that because I do think and I do see some firms where you could say the AUM is a lot smaller. But if you don't have too many people, as you rightly said, you know, don't maybe start out with too too big a, uh, an infrastructure. But if you have enough people to to do what you want to do, and you have uh, enough AUM to pay the bills, so to speak, but you still have that upside in terms of performance fees and so on and so forth, I think you can actually build really good businesses even at a much smaller size if you're if you're also careful about the expense side of 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 that. So. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure that the way uh, you know uh, most of the people that are on this podcast will will uh, you know we've obviously grown up in a certain way of doing things and and we see all these legacy le- legacy firms with great stories, great track records, great AUM and all of that. I'm just not so sure that that, that is something you can easily achieve today unless you have something that is absolutely so unique that you can demonstrate it very quickly and people can see it really quickly that you have found something that nobody else is offering. But that in itself is also uh, quite a tall order, I would say. So, But it's a great question, Derek. And so we appreciate that. And and maybe Jerry next week will have some news on what he might do um, if he was to start all over today. Let's leave Derek's questions and move on to Joe. Joe writes in, first off, I'm addicted to your podcast. I look forward to new episodes, much like I used to wait for new cartoons on Saturday mornings when I was a kid. So that tells you about my age bracket. I trend follow US and foreign stocks. I also try to trade as many ETFs as possible for diversification, metals, commodity, currency, etc. And I wanted to ask your opinion on one difficult subject for me personally. My question is, when I look at the charts that make it through my screeners, I inevitably have to decide between stocks at all-time highs and ones that were higher in in the recent past, sometimes much higher, but are now recovering and trending upwards again. Psychologically speaking, it's difficult for me to see past the top of a chart with new all-time highs when it's so easy to tell myself that since the recovering stocks have been higher before, there is a precedent and they can reach that level again. So is there any justification for my bias against all-time highs and fears of buying the top or do I need to just quit overthinking it and as Jerry often says, take all the trades? Thank you so much for your time and your podcast from Joe in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Joe, for that and for your kind comments. Moritz, what is your what is your advice for Joe? I absolutely love buying all-time highs. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'd say don't don't overthink it. If your system tells you to buy that high and it's the all-time high, then you buy it. If the market has corrected from a high, you got kicked out of your position, uh, it hit the exit and the market starts rising again, you get an entry signal, you take that entry signal and you go along again. It is really, I wouldn't overthink that. And I definitely don't want to penalize an all-time high against another type of a high, uh, more like a local high, because the all-time highs, even though you know they look like, well, the market has never been here before, it's never been higher, sure, that's the definition of an all-time high. 
is still a good a good system to buy all time highs. So come to terms with that, I'd say, and and just just go long. So of course, Joe, not surprising. I will agree with Moritz, but I'll tell you uh, I'll tell you why I agree. Um, two things. First of all, just staying on the topic of all-time high. I mean, did you know that the S&P has made 53 all-time highs just this year alone? We still have five months left. I mean, that's just one reason why all-time highs are not is not a bad thing. And if you look at since 2009, for example, I mean, how many times has the equity markets made all-time highs? So, as Moritz says, don't be afraid of the all-time high. But the reason I would not overthink it is if you do... You cannot, in as far as I can tell from your question, you can't be 100% rules-based, right? Because you are now deciding discretionarily which trade to take. And I think for me, that's the cardinal flaw in your in what if, if, if you if you do that compared to what we do, where we don't have an opinion whether it's a good trade or it's a bad trade. We simply just take the trade. So I think that's the advantage you get. It's the discipline, it's the systematic and rules-based approach. And as we've talked about in the last few weeks in particular with Rich, and that is what we do is we hunt for the outlier. And there is just no way we can tell in advance what the outlier is going to be. So by definition, you have to take all the trades, I'm afraid, Joe. So um, hopefully that works out for you in the future. But I love the question and um, thanks for your kind words. Next question is from James. James writes, hope you're well. Just wondering if you could recommend a software program for the retail investor that has limited programming skills that can backtest the classic classic trend-following strategy discussed on your show. Moritz, are you familiar with any um, software where you don't have to do the heavy lifting in terms of programming? I think you and I will kind of think about the same one. Starts with Yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a few that I've used. I mean, there's there's one that I'm... Uh, I still have installed on my computer. Uh, it's it's trading blocks. I think that's yeah. very straightforward to use. I mean, limited programming skills is what you need. It's you know based on the scripting language, chart based, um, but easy to use. It pretty much in the same way that um, Trade Station or Trade Signal, Ninja Trader, those are other names. Uh, you know, you can use them in the same way. But trading blocks is really, really, really well built for trend-following type of trading systems. And there's uh, some systems in there that are pre-built, uh, which you can use, like, you know... I think tur- the turtle system is one turtle of them, The turtle system right? is in there, right? So you can you can use that as a base, start from there, or just use that. <laughs> yeah, um, but I will say, and, and I think you and I will both agree that we're not endorsing any of these systems. We're just mentioning systems that we have heard about or familiar with. But I will say, on top of what uh, Moritz just said, I would just say, James, that you should still, I mean even though you buy something that's off the shelf and may or may not be, you know, have, you know, a lot of uh, people testing it and running it, you should always be critical about what, you know, what you see and what you do. Um, there can be box, there can be other things. So, uh, but it's certainly something that might help you and speed up things instead of trying to build it yourself, of course. So, uh, so I, I agree with what Moritz um, uh, just said there. Another question, Moritz, that you might be able to uh, answer here is for uh, Sebastian. Sebastian writes, Interactive brokers just introduced negative interest rates for trading accounts above 50,000, at least in Europe, starting from tomorrow, so that's a few days ago. Do you have to deal with similar restrictions in any kind, and how do you deal with that? I I am affected by negative interest rates. Um, In the Interactive brokers account, in my RJO account, 
in essentially all of the accounts except for my checking account, which I have here at the local savings bank. But trading wise, it is uh, it is a it is an issue uh, if you are a, a euro denominated investor or Swiss francs denominated investor or Danish kroner denominated investor. It's less of an issue if you're in the U.S. and uh, your accounts are in, in U.S. dollars. So, what can you do? Well, the the I think the objective is to hold as little cash as you as you can. You know, you can't hold zero cash. You always need to have some cash on hand. To operate as a trader, but you don't need, nobody forces you to keep all your residual non-margin cash in euro cash and pay negative interest on that, right? I mean, you can buy other securities. Those could be, you know, in the US, you could buy treasury bills and, 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 and notes and stuff. But here in Europe, even that's coming with a negative interest rate. If, if you put your money into Boo bills or shots or bubble or bund or even the books allowed to 30 years, it's all negative, right? So that really doesn't help. So it, it forces people out on the risk curve where they either go into credit risk, mortgages, these type of things. I, I, I don't do that because I don't have, I have no edge in picking credit risk. And I don't want to spend time on fundamental analysis on, on, on any of these type of things. But I've mentioned before that I'm uh, interested in these cash and carry trades where I can get a, a positive yield. And these cash and carry trades, they could come in the form of holding a single stock long and being short a single stock futures contract against that, which trade on Eurex. And you're taking that single stock off of somebody's balance sheet, for instance, a bank, and they pay you a premium for that. And that moves you into positive interest rate territory. You can do cash and carry trades with uh, spot emissions here in, in Europe, and they pay about 100 basis points. And that's a very, very nice trade because you're essentially holding an instrument that's backed by um, the European Commission uh, and all the governments here, and you're short a futures contract against that. Well, we do trade futures, so no problem there. It, you, you could do that very, very lucratively in the digital asset space. Those uh, basis trades are becoming a bit more interesting again right now as we speak. They've obviously collapsed when when Bitcoin collapsed to to thirty thousand, but you can do them there. Just just be careful on how you do them, like where you hold your digital assets and uh, and, and how you structure these type of things. But as far as I'm concerned, there are quite a few opportunities for you to move out of the negative interest rate environment as a proprietary trader or even as a even as a CTA, that's you know open-minded and willing to engage in these trades. Of course, you have to understand them, research them, make sure you execute them properly, and not just shoot from the hip. Um, but um, it's possible to do that. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, Moritz. And and I think generally speaking, uh, Sebastian, you you just have to accept that if 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 there is a currency or a number of currencies that has negative interest rates there's not much you can do about it other than accept it and because every time you're going to try and avoid that you're going to just take on some other kinds of risk and frankly you know with say half a percent negative interest rates per year your systems should hopefully still be able to produce a a, a positive outcome it's not going to be devastating to your uh, to your uh, trading i would say Last question is from uh, Mikkel. I have a feeling that Mikkel is a fellow Dane, so uh, hello to you, Mikkel. Great show. Keep up the good work. I'm a data scientist getting getting into trend following, and I got curious about your backtesting method after listening to episode 155. 
You mentioned that a backtest of, say, the last 50 years of data doesn't necessarily make accurate predictions about the next 10 years as markets always change. This makes perfect sense. My question is then, would this also have applied 10 years ago? In that case, can you make the backtesting up to 10 years ago and then keep the last 10 years as unknown for the model? Those 10 years would then indicate how the model had performed 10 years into the unknown future, simulating that you did the backtesting 10 years ago and then ran the model live for 10 years. This is similar to splitting data into training and validation for machine learning models. To take this a step further, you can split the last 50 years of data into five segments of 10 years and then fit your model on four of the five segments five times. Uh, That way, you will end up with five model predictions of 10 unknown years each, which you can use to calculate both the average return and standard deviation. Next, you can fit slash train your model until the average return of those unknown validation data is as close to the return as the training data as possible. This is a common method for for avoiding over slash underfitting in machine learning. And I'm curious if you apply a similar technique in your backtesting. So we're back to backtesting where we started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, uh, very good question, uh, Mikkel. Um, A lot of traders do what you've just described, which is in-sample and out-of-sample testing. And your out-of-sample period could be, as you've suggested, the past 10 years or the past three years, um, the past five years. It could also be at the beginning of your data sample, right? You could say, I'm leaving the first 10 years out and I'm testing my system on all the remaining data. And then I see if it would have worked back then, you know, moving back in time, 30 years, 40 years, whatever, at the very beginning where you haven't seen the data yet. So I think that is that is interesting and um and, and a nice thing to look at what it also means, and I want to come back to that sample size discussion that we have. If, if you have 30 years of data and you leave 10 out, then you're not looking at one third of your sample size. So it does come with consequences. And so I've done what you did in the past, which is I've used in sample and then I kept some data, the current data out of sample on which I did not train my system. And then I had a look at, you know, how that would have worked. I now feeling confident enough that with my trend following trading style, where I keep the losses small and I let the windows run, I'm okay to look at the entire data set and test on the full thing to exactly get what is the average trade, the average win, the average loss and all these type of things. And I don't think that my type of trading system, because it's I've removed a lot of the complexities over time, is is that sensitive to um, to an in out of sample type of analysis? And of course, that is completely different to what you've just um, mentioned in your question, Niels, when it comes to machine learning and you know these type of um, systems, NLP, et cetera, et cetera. There, you have a lot of dependencies on the data with how your systems work. So you you probably are forced to do what you say. But with my trend-following trading style, I don't really see the need, to be honest. At least I don't see it right now. I don't see it any longer. I used to do that. Don't do it right now. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great answer uh, and, and to a great question, by the way, Miguel. so I appreciate that. So in a funny way, I've kind of done some of what you've just said 
with my trend following model because we did the back test from 1990 up until say 2007-ish. Then we went live and traded that. And then around 2013-ish, we probably updated some of the models parameters based on further tests. And then since 2013, I haven't changed a thing. So the numbers I've quote every week is based on something that hasn't been touched for almost 10 years at all. And so if I look back at that, and I talked about it a little bit, I think with Rich last week, it's certainly uh, most people would never do what I've done, which is you end up with something where you do a forward test without trading it uh, live for, for 10 years. But that's obviously because I work for another firm. But what's interesting about the experiment is that in the question, would I change anything today knowing what it's now done in, in out of sample? And the answer is probably no. And the reason I say that is when I look at the profile of the return since 2013 or so, um, since we made the last change, it's pretty much what I would expect from a trend-following system. You know, it's had its good years. It's It had its drawdown going into the end of 2018 is where it had its worst drawdown. And then it's had a great run. You know, last year was incredibly strong. This year is okay so far and so on and so forth. So it actually is doing what I would expect a trend-following uh, strategy, trading those markets. Of course, if, if I had included Bitcoin and Ethereum and stuff like that, it, maybe it would have done even better. But given the market universe that we selected all those years ago, I would say it's doing exactly what I expect. And therefore, probably, uh, you could always oh, you know, try and optimize. But it's, for me, it's been a really helpful exercise because I think it's confirmed the way we thought about building a trend-following system all those years ago and actually i think we've achieved exactly that so anyways but great question makers so appreciate that now Mart, those were the questions i have one question left for you which has nothing to do really with trend following uh oh before we wrap <laughs> up <laughs> uh oh and it's just that there's some things happening in germany this month such as a uh, an election and since uh, since you are uh, Based in Germany, I thought you might have some interesting thoughts, comments. Germany is, as we know, a very, very important part of the European Union. And so, uh, yeah. So, what should we expect from uh, from the Germans this month? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, but what has been very interesting is that the um, Social Democratic Party, the SPD, yeah, has made a tremendous comeback. Um, they've been in the trough. I mean, even a couple of months back, they were kind of like a party not to be reckoned with. And, and you know, some people said, well, maybe we just don't need that party anymore. They're like uh, getting close to 10%. I mean, it's kind of like very, 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 very low numbers compared to where they, uh, where they used to be. And um, the conservatives, the CDU and CSU, they were way ahead, uh, as were the Greens, and this has completely changed. Uh, it's it's really a head-to-head -head race between uh, the Social Democratic Party and the CDU, it seems, right now. But the Social Democratic Party is even five points ahead of the CDU as of the latest polling. And he's the current finance minister, right? He's the, the current who's, finance yeah. minister, um, the vice chancellor. That's Olaf Scholz. So a real turnaround of things. <laughs> What's so interesting is that the even the Greens and the Liberals, they're all kind of like on the same level now. 
So what that means is you have at least, um, I think, five or six possible coalition combinations. Okay. And that I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing because uh, okay let's let's just take two of those out because they would include the far left or the far right so probably that's not going to be a, a starter but that still leaves you four combinations four possible combinations of parties and so how how long will it take that country to actually find the coalition find yeah. to run the government and you know this can take months I'm sure if that's good but yeah that's that's what it is like right now. Interesting. Certainly worth, I mean, again, as, as people know who listen to us every week, they know that it pay, it, it makes no difference to uh, how, how we trade and, right. and what our systems will do. But it might uh, just, as, as you rightly say, it could uh, increase some uh, the levels of uncertainty if they can't figure out how to work together or, or whatever it might mean. Yeah. So uh, it's always interesting to I see. Mean, some some markets may even get impacted by by a result. I mean, if say the Greens sure. become oh, yeah. part of the government and uh, and let's say they uh, they have a very high vote there. Then uh, what does that do to the emissions market? What does that do to the energies markets? If they say, you know what, forget about 2050, we're doing everything by 2030. Uh, what does that do to power prices? And so that that could have an effect. But other than that, it's normally um, not much of an issue. Other than <laughs> taxes and these type of things, you know, if uh, some of those parties that are calling for substantially higher taxes and uh, that of course, means that I would be paying or we would all be paying higher taxes on our trading profits. So, yeah. You can always move a couple of hours uh, to uh, to the south and you'll be uh, in Switzerland. So, uh, in Switzerland, you're always welcome. And I can pay my taxes in Bitcoin, which is uh, something that you can do. You can. Ex that's exactly right. And uh, we didn't even get to talk about Bitcoin, but of course, as most people will have noticed, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other cryptos are big on 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 a tear again. Uh, we'll see if it makes new all-time highs, but it's certainly been an interesting six weeks. Are your have your systems kicked in on the long side again in everything? Oh yeah, or? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah fact, I see a big uh, smile at you. So yes, I'm sure that's uh, that's uh, that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Cool. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think Jerry also managed to stay long some of the bitcoins as well so that's good okay well speaking about performance it's only been a few days of course in september so far and and these numbers are as of thursday it's only really after a couple of trading days in september nevertheless beta 50 is up 56 basis points up eight and a half percent for the year Sockgen ct index up 34 basis points up almost seven percent for the year the trend index up 39 basis points, up almost 9% for the year. And the Sokjian short-term traders index up 24 basis points for the month, up 42 basis points or 0.42% for the year. The trend barometer, I'm into that already. It's down at 30, which is weak. So the time frame I'm using for that clearly is not the same as the longer-term systems, but we've talked about that uh, prior MSCI also still making uh, new highs, up another 72 basis points so far in September, up 17.62% for the year. Bonds are giving up a little bit, down 7 basis points in the World Government Bond Index so far this month. This was fun. Great to have you back, Morita. Glad you enjoyed your holiday. As I mentioned, next week it's uh, Jerry who's on. Hopefully we can pick up uh, some of the things we talked about today. Uh, system diversification could be one, Jerry, if you're making notes. But in any event, what makes it even more fun is when you write into us with questions. And you can, of course, do that 
to info at toptradersonplug.com and we do our very best to give you uh, our thoughts on the topics, on the questions. And of course, as mentioned at the beginning, we would be so grateful if you could just go and uh, leave a rating and review uh, in iTunes for the podcast because it makes a huge difference for the algos that essentially promote the podcast within that environment. Anyways, from Moritz and me, thank you ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.